We'll pray and then we'll read our passage. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we thank you um, for this time that we can gather, that we can worship you through the studying of your word. Lord, we ask that as we uh, navigate this passage that you would help us to to see the context, that you would help us to see uh, how this fits um, within the passage of the Sermon on the Mount. We pray that you would speak to each one of us, Lord, through your word. Lord, we pray that you would minister to us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a greater understanding of um, our relationship with you. Um, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us today through your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Um, Father, we pray that you would guide us now. Lord, help us to understand Uh, what Jesus said, what the original context was. Lord, how this applies to us today. Lord, we look to you for help. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So we're we're sort of, we're entering in the middle of a sermon here. Uh, The picture behind me, it's in front of me, but you guys can see it behind me. This this is a picture of the Mount of Beatitudes. Um, Today in Israel, it's, it's, we don't exactly know where this teaching is happened, but they have a general idea that it was up on the hill uh, behind the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, this is the view that those who are listening to Jesus would have had. He would have had his back to the crowd, or the back to the crowd, the back to the, the Sea of Galilee. He would have used the natural acoustics. And so we see that in chapter five, verse one, that a huge crowd had started following And as they were following, Jesus brings them up to the mountain and he begins teaching them uh, things of the kingdom. And and this sermon known as the Sermon of the Mount goes through chapters 5, 6, and 7. What we've seen so far is the first uh, 12 verses open with the Beatitudes, these uh, principles, these truisms, almost proverbial statements about uh, the character and attitude of those who are part of the kingdom of God. Uh, it, it builds to this, if you live by these principles, those who live by these principles, they'll be blessed. This lifestyle isn't always met with applause by the world around it. It can result in persecution. But even in the midst of the persecution, uh, these people are blessed. He says in verse 12, to rejoice and to be glad for your reward in heaven is is great. Uh, he points to their, the, the hope in Christ, the hope of the kingdom uh, leads to true joy and satisfaction, um, gladness. Last week, we looked at this, that he says that those who follow him, those who are part of the kingdom, he said that you are uh, salt of the world and light of the world. Um, and he expounds upon that. And all of a sudden in today's passage, there's sort of what seems to be this sort of abrupt uh, sort of change of course of the, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, suddenly today, he, he starts speaking on righteousness and the law or the law and the prophets, which um, is how they would refer to the whole of the Old Testament from Genesis uh, to Malachi, the scriptures uh, that, that Jesus had at that time. He begins to speak on the law and prophets and how does it fit? And, and, and as I've been pondering this, this question of, of the law, the, the prophets, the Old Testament, and how it relates to, to the Christian, this is a critical question for every Christian to sort of deal with. In my study this week, I started 
uh, you know, Googling a bunch of statistics to see what I could find on surveys that had been done. So from the Pew Research to Barna to, you know, all of these agencies that just randomly call Americans and say, hey, do you have time for a... a a 20-minute survey, and people say yes, they start working through things. Um, all of the data seems to show that when people are asked about what, what, what do you think it takes to get to heaven, 30% of Americans believe that the way to heaven is through good works. Many of them said by, was by obeying the Ten Commandments. Um, if you, as they continued this line of questioning... 78% of all Americans support the Ten Commandments being in public areas, courthouses, schools. Um, they're valued at some level, probably because if 30% think that they have to do with getting into heaven, it's, you think, well, let's have that around there. If that's the way to heaven, let's keep them up and available to see. The final one sort of made me laugh, and it was the the percentage of Americans who could list the Ten Commandments, that's only 17%. And I think that's a high number. I don't know how they, just by my little survey of the first service, I didn't have anybody raise their hands, but let's just say, I said, I have a million dollars to the person who could quote the Ten Commandments. Ben's getting serious. It's just in theory, Pastor Ben. It's not like, you know. But I find it funny that there's such a high percentage of people who, who believe that if I want to go to heaven, all I have to do is obey the Ten Commandments. But then nobody knows what the Ten Commandments are. I would think if I really believe that that's the way to heaven, I would have those bad boys memorized inside out, backwards, doing whatever I could do. And so the question is, how do they relate? And, and, and how the Christian relates to the law is important. And I hope that today, as we go through this, we'll see what Jesus has to say. We'll get some insight. Why would Jesus shift? Uh, he, he goes from talking about the attitude of the one who's a part of the kingdom. Blessed are they for these, these inward characteristics, how they relate to one another. They're um, sort of being preservation and light to the culture in which they sit. And now he turns his attention to the law. And really the whole rest of this chapter, the portion we're covering today is going to be expanded upon for the next three or four weeks, I believe, uh, sort of how Jesus unpacks this. Um, Why would Jesus start talking about the law? Uh, Well, that's a good question. The the number one reason is we have to, in backing up of the gospels, each gospel has sort of its own flavor or intended audience. Matthew is the gospel that very much is written uh, to the Jewish hearer, uh, the, the person that f- found themselves in the first century who was a Jew, who lived according to the law, who heard the claims of Jesus, uh, that he was their promised Messiah. I'd want, I'd want some validation. I'd want some, some support. Because you can't just come on scene and say that you're the Messiah. This is why Matthew's introduction is so, so, so different from all of the other Gospels. All of the other Gospels kind of start out with this, this story, and, and Matthew starts out with genealogy. Well, if the genealogy is not there, there's no point in continuing the story with Jesus if you're a Jew. And so Matthew, very early on, begins to lay out the framework that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah, how the Messiah handles the, the law and prophets is, is critical if they're the Messiah. And so Jews, during this time, as Jesus is healing people, as he's doing miracles, as he's walking around, there would be criticism. Is he, is he doing away with everything we know and is starting something fresh? Is he, is he rejecting everything? And so Jesus is going to address the law uh, he's going to show us, he's going to show them how the law was actually intended to be used. What's its purpose? What was its heart? And so right away here in verse 17, we read, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish. And I'm going to stop there. 
the very first thing we see that Jesus makes abundantly clear is that when he came to earth and as he started his ministry, he did not abolish, he did not do away with um, the Old Testament. I want to point out some things. When I read this, do not think that I came. That, that phrase right away just sort of grips me. When I was in seminary, one of the professors speaking on the Gospel of John, he, he, he said something that he's like, well, as you read the Gospel of John, and really as you read all of the Gospels, he's like, you just have to think of the letter U, and it will help you kind of keep everything sort of um, together in your mind. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, this guy's getting old. He's like lost. Like, I don't know, like the letter U. He's like, no, you just, he's like, think of it that Jesus is in heaven. He comes to earth. He lives his life and then he returns. And as you go through the gospel of John, you'll see this sort of, um, this, this coming to earth. And so when I read, let me explain. He says, for I came to abolish. I did not come to abolish. Excuse me. I, He's not saying that, hey, I arrived at the Galilee. I arrived here. I came into This is, I came to earth. I became man. I am here not to abolish the law. My whole, my whole purpose, you know, the reason we sell, celebrate Christmas or the, the heart behind Christmas, not that it's a biblical thing, is to celebrate the incarnation that God became man. So he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. He says, I came to fulfill it. And there's this, there's this purpose that he's trying to explain the law and the prophets that, that they and really we, in a lot of ways, have misunderstood, misapplied, turned into something that God never intended. I... I have an illustration just like right at the tip of my brain and it's killing me because for the last 48 hours, I just want it to come like a half an inch further in my brain so that I can remember it. (laughs) It's a great illustration. I wrote in my notes hoping that by the time I got to this place that it would come to me. So this is what I wrote. I wrote... Something I was using wrong, and then I learned the correct way to use it, and I had an aha moment. I can't for the sake of me. I think at 3 in the morning tonight, it's going to come to me, and I'm going to call each one of you, and I'm going to let you know what it is. (laughs) But in the last year, there was something, and I can't remember what it is. But it's something that I've been using for years, for years, incorrectly. And one day, I suddenly figured out how it was intended to be used and it made whatever I was doing so I'm like this is genius but I can't so if you were with me when I had that aha moment will you let me know what it is because it'll make a great aha moment the closest thing I could come is you know Anna has a hard time opening the dish or not the dishes the, the you know those things jars so I get called into the rescue. Hey, can you open the jar? Sure, I'd love to open the jar. One day I'm out at the store and I say, hey, there's this little thing you can like zip under the counter and you just put the jar in there. It'll open. It'll like free up a whole bunch of time for me. And so I buy the thing. I'm like, this is going to be excellent. And so then I get it. I bring it home. I'm like, yeah, I got something. So you'll be able to open jars. It's going to be wonderful. And I'm looking around the kitchen. I'm like, where can I mount? I'm like, I think we should probably right there is the most logical spot. Let me, I'm going to go get the drill. I'm going to go get my screws. And I, I grab the thing, I get out of the wrapper, and I lean down to go put it up there. And guess what was right there? The thing I just bought had been there the whole time, and it was like, ah! That wasn't my illustration, but it's the closest thing I could come to thinking of this. <laughs> Good enough. Thank you, Alberto. And so what Jesus is, is coming, what he's going to unpack for them and for us is, They've been using the law in the absolute wrong way. And Jesus is going to teach them, explain to them the whole purpose, because the way they were using it was actually causing more destruction than good. And so he says here, this last phrase that I, that I, that I paused. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill 
we need to let those three words sink in. That statement, that phrase, I didn't come to abolish, but I, but I came to fulfill. This is an absolute crazy, crazy statement. I mean, not that it's incorrect. But, but, but what Jesus is saying is, guys, I didn't come to abolish the law and prophets. In my Bible, it's nice because we're in Matthew, so it's really easy for me to find the Old Testament. So this is the law and the prophets. This would be equivalent. What Jesus is saying, if I walked in on a Sunday and I said, this is the Old Testament, guys. Everything in there is written to tell you about me, that I fulfill it. Now, what would you guys do? I hope you get your stones and start throwing rocks at me and say, Gunner, you're crazy. You've lost your marbles. It doesn't speak of you. But it speaks of the Messiah. And Jesus says, all of it, I fulfill it. The greatest Bible study that ever happened in human history, there were three people there. It wasn't any one of us. If you teach or lead a Bible study, don't get discouraged by small numbers. Because I'm convinced that the greatest Bible study in human history is recorded in Luke chapter 24. In verses 25 through 26, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ had happened. However, nobody knew about the resurrection of Christ. And in the story there, Christ had been killed. Two guys are walking on the road to Damascus. A third guy shows up. It's Jesus, but he's concealed himself to them. And they're kind of talking, and Jesus kind of walks up and is like, hey, guys, what's going on? What are you guys talking about? They sort of look at me like, are you out of your mind? Are you the only person in all of Israel that has no clue about what happened? Jesus was here. And he was executed. And how in the world can you not know? There's Jesus kind of like, really? Tell me more about this. What's going on? And they're looking at Jesus like he's out of his mind. And then this story picks up at verse 24. It says, and he, that's Jesus, said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken of. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses... With all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all of the scriptures, and they had no clue it was Jesus. These two guys are sitting on the road, opening up the whole Bible, and as this guy is teaching to them, he's explaining from Genesis all the way to Malachi how what happened to this guy Jesus that they're talking about it was totally and completely foretold of. I mean, all through the Old Testament, there are too many to list, but Psalm 22, Micah 5.2, Hosea 11.1, 1, Jeremiah 31.5, Isaiah 43, 40, verse 3, Isaiah 9.1-12, Isaiah 53, all throughout the Old Testament is the story of God's redemption of humanity and the theme of all of the Old Testament, all of the scriptures, it's about this Jesus. And Jesus sits down and talks and he says to them, don't think that I came to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. I've always talked, I've always sort of understood and there's probably some truth to this. I, when I start hearing about the fulfilling of the law, I sort of, I, I'm a guy who likes checklists. Give me a list. Just give me a list. I'll get through it. If I can't sleep at night and I have anxiety about whatever, the best way for me to fall asleep is I grab a little piece of paper and I just start writing down. Well, now I don't even write. I, use, I pick up my phone and on the note section, I start typing. Anna laughs at me sometimes. She'll, I'll be sound asleep. And also I'll pick up my phone and just, and she's like, what? You are snoring. It's her accusation against me. I don't think I snore. I've never heard it. <laughs> And she's like, you just, you just basically typed yourself a note and then went right back to sleep. I'm like, yeah, I was like stressing out about something. And so like the best way for me to like unstress is just put it down. I can get to it. Just give me a list. I'll just check it off. And so while we think of the old, like while we think of the 10 commandments, the reality is, is there's 613 commands. 
This week, for the first time I've ever done, I went to kabad.org, C-H-A-B-A, it might be two B's, A-D-E.org. It's the Orthodox Jewish website. And they have listed every single command. So you can read through it. Fascinating. There's like, I got about three into it. I'm like, yeah, I'm done. There's no, like, this is just hopeless. What was I talking about? Okay, here. (laughs) Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill. And so while I thought of it as a checklist, this word to fulfill could actually mean like like the image of filling up a pot or uh, there's something you have to put in. And so the idea is in one sense that how did Jesus fulfill? Like imagine a, a pot that there's only one thing that could fill the pot perfectly or think of a shirt that would only fit one person. And Jesus is basically saying that the law, it, I fulfill it. I am able to complete it. When you start looking at the prophecy of scripture, I, I can't remember if it was who it was. I think it was Josh McDowell, possibly one of the um, defenders of the faith. It talks about the, uh, the idea that the amount of fulfilled prophecy in Jesus, like what you're talking about is going down to a print shop blowing it up with dynamite and as a result of the explosion thousands of dictionaries appear it just doesn't it doesn't happen like this is miraculous like, there is there cannot be a substitute for the fulfillment in which Christ did but but then he also lived it if the Old Testament is a checklist, and there is a certain amount of checks, checklists, but we're all failures at the checklist. There's no way we can complete the list. Jesus was born under the law. He died under the law. And at no point anywhere in his life did he fall short of the law. He perfectly fulfilled it. He is the only one who is capable or able in human history to do this. And so the Old Testament is, is sort of a, a doodle the the Christ is the portrait. If the Old Testament is a stick figure, stick figure, Jesus would be the sculpture. One guy, Scott McKnight, gave a great example of the Old Testament being an old school typewriter. You guys know the old school typewriters. I, I mean, not with electricity. I'm talking where you press it down and the thing goes crack crack. I used to love those as a kid. I would play with them, and we played the little game where you put your hand there, and the other person would try to, like, strike it, and whack. And then if you hit all of them, like, all of the things would go, and then they'd jam up, so you had to kind of pull them back. And But that, I think, is like the original typewriter. You really can't find them anymore. But this guy gives the example of a computer. Think about it. The, the computers that we use today, even if you're talking about an iPad or whatever the other one is, I, <laughs> Surface. Yeah, the other iPad. <laughs> Microsoft's version of the iPad. Like, you, yeah, just so you guys all know what team I'm on, you know, there. Uh, but even when the keyboard appears on the screen, it's the same concept, the same theory as a typewriter. And so the guy uses this illustration between the difference between a a typewriter and a computer to show the law and prophets and Christ's fulfillment. He says the typewriter, when the typewriter was a little boy, all it wanted to be was a computer. And this compares to the law now being fulfilled in Christ. Thus, when a Christian lives in the spirit, it transcends the typewriter, the law and the prophets. So when we live according to the spirit, when we're walking with Christ, we meet the standard in him. But when the Christian falls back into the law and under the law, it's like we're pulling out the dusty old typewriter and trying to live that way. This was Paul's critique of the Judaizers is that they kept pulling out the typewriter when the fulfillment had come. By putting them away, we don't destroy them. You know, you can't, you, you can't even find 
one of those old typewriters anymore. I, I knew of one person, but in the last service, everybody who had one told me about it. <laughs> so far, the only people who have the old school typewriters that I've encountered by my rough survey of today's service, and I'm sure you guys are going to skew it for me after the end of the service. There are two people. The one is Rick Restivo. He has an old school typewriter, and it sits in the top of a closet. But once a year, his wife has to pull it out. And the reason she has to pull it out is because the government has a form that requires the typewriter. And so he pull, his wife pulls it out. She types up the one form, fills in the boxes, and then they put it away for the next year. The only other person was Debbie Johnson came to me, and she said, well, I do too. And I was like, well, you're a bookkeeper, so you have that same form. We don't use those anymore. And so to go back to the law, this is not what Christ is calling us to do. And if we go back to the law, if we try to submit ourselves to the law, you might be able to get away with it for a while. You might be able to live okay. But if you go too far, you're going to run into problems. Let me explain. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, a, a weird circumstance came up. I, I, I was, my family has uh, been given the opportunity to travel to Nicaragua. You heard that correctly. Nicaragua. It's like, when I found him, I'm like, Nicaragua, what? And I started saying Nicaragua. I'm like, that's a fun word to say, Nicaragua. Like, I, like it really is a fun word. So we're going to Nicaragua for like five days. And so I find myself on the computer research in Nicaragua. Like one of the things I'm looking up is, what's the deal with car seats? Like is it, is it legally required down there? Something, and well, if it's not legally required down there, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. We're like, there's one last thing to, like we're kind of like figuring out what we'll, we'll do. Should I look up and it's like, oh, car seats are required. Okay, well, if I'm in Nicaragua and the law requires car seats, I could follow Nicaraguan law, and there's going to be a ton of overlap between the United States and Nicaragua. And so in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's tons of overlap, but then there's a whole bunch of non-overlap that we're no longer living in Nicaragua. I mean, well, we never were living in Nicaragua. We're no longer living in the Old Testament law. And the more that I study this, the more I, I like, was, was, the, was, the, was the Old Testament law given to us? If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, before the giving of the law, I'm not going to read the first eight verses. But it starts with this great proclamation. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform so that you may go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving to you. Skip down to verse 8, or 7, excuse me. For, for what great nation is there that God, that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God Whenever we call on him or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as the whole law, which I'm setting before you today. And so when we see the giving of the law, it was given very specifically to Israel. Israel was different from those around it. Israel was supposed to be a light to the world around it. You can go back to Matthew My speculation is that most of us are Gentiles. I'm 100% certain that none of us were Jews during the first century when Jesus was speaking as part of Israel. And I'm not saying that the Old Testament, like I preached from the Old Testament. You get, we, we, the, the Old Testament is beautiful. It shows the character, nature, holiness of God. And so when we come to the Old Testament, we have to be careful and we have to interpret the Old Testament through the lens that Christ has fulfilled the law. And there's, there's, there's variance. And I'm, and I'm not, and I'm not going to get into like, there's, I have brothers and sisters and there's a whole wide of how do you handle this? 
I, I think that the, the most balanced thing is that when we come to the Old Testament, we have to read it and understand it in the sense that Christ has fulfilled it. And, and how does that affect, um, how does that affect the way we live? Like one of the things that I know that's in the one of the 613 commands is mixed fibers. Can you guys tell if this is a mixed? I don't know. I think it's something and something else. There's a percentage. I have mixed fibers. Like I think I'm breaking the the Old Testament law right now with this shirt. So are you. So don't judge me. (laughs) But are we wrong before? We'll see. We're not under that. Christ has fulfilled it. But then there are other commands that are in the old Testament that we could say are we, that we don't do that if we're obeying the law in the old Testament, we're also covered in the new Testament. It's really under the, the new Testament example that we're going through. I hope this makes sense. I don't want to get lost in, in a big dialogue over this, but, but, but the heart is, is that the old Testament law, Jesus says he didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. And then in verse 18, he says, for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. What's Jesus' view of the scriptures? His view is very, very high. Uh, sparing you guys an explanation of the Hebrew alphabet, I'll use the English to kind of help you understand what he's saying. He's saying in all of the scriptures, if the scriptures were in English that we have before us, he says uh, on a lowercase i, there's a little dot above the lowercase i. He says, every little dot above every little I is inspired of God and is the word of God. Now imagine a capital P and a capital R. What's the difference between a capital P and a capital R? It's the kickstand, right? That's the other equivalent. He's saying even that kickstand is a part of God's word. And and it will remain until the earth passes away. Jesus has a very high esteem of the word of God. But even more so, what I want to point out to you that would be very easy for us to to pass over. This statement for truly, or if you're reading the King James, verily, verily, or he says, I say to you, in my digging that this statement is profound. I haven't read every single rabbinic teaching so I can only go what I've read others to say. But others, sources have said that there is no rabbinic teaching where, where the rabbi speaks on his own authority. Jesus is speaking on his own authority. He says, I say to you, and he's going to lay this out. No pastor, no Christian should speak on their own authority. Um, this is the reason why at this church we we pick a book of the Bible and we work through the book of the Bible. And Anna and I, as I was talking with her about this, this point, and I said, well, like the last thing the church wants me is to like be picking out topics from the Bible every week because, man, if I'm like angry at somebody, I can find a whole lot of scripture to kind of deal with my anger and like letting it, you know, letting God's, using God to speak for me in my anger, or if I'm happy, like, I can manipulate it to say whatever I want. I mean, but by going through a book at the time, I'm constrained. I humble myself before the Lord, and I am forced, or whoever is at this pulpit teaching is forced to allow God to speak his word to us as he laid it out. I was a little bit offended at my wife. She's like, you think you could keep constrained to topics within the Bible? She's like, you're so... You get something in your mind and all you want to do is talk about that. She's like, we just brought a puppy home last night. And she's like, you'd be talking about the puppy for the next three weeks. Like you'd be giving lectures on how to, tr- how to crate train a puppy, which is I'm probably guilty of. But so Jesus is different. His teaching was totally and completely different than anybody else. If you'll turn with me to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the very end of chapter 8, I mean, it's chapter 7, excuse me. At the very end of chapter 7, when he's done with his sermon, look at what Matthew says about the people's response to his teaching. 
It said when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Jesus is the author of the word of God. The author knows and can speak authoritatively about what it means. I'm just a man. And as Alistair Begg says, the best of men are men at best. And so I humble myself, I pray, I study, I do all of, all of my labor so that hopefully, prayerfully, that, that when I present the word of God from this pulpit, I'm, I'm presenting it as faithfully as I possibly can. But I'm still not the author. It, you guys would be blown away if Jesus was here teaching. Like, he, he wrote all of this. This is all his word. He could tell you exactly what it meant, what it, the heart of it was. And so when he speaks, he speaks differently than those that, that were creating all of the rules. We move into verse 19. Whoever then annuls, this word annul could be translated relaxed, loosen. It's the picture sort of me at Thanksgiving or many other meals where I have to kind of loosen the belt to get some breathing room to sort of relax things to make it more comfortable. This is the idea. Whoever then annuls or loosens or relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I think what Jesus is saying here reminds me of uh, my wife, for those of you who don't know, she grew up in Spain. And so over the years, I've become more and more familiar with Spanish culture um, than before I met and married her. And so in Spanish, the medical field there, they are very different with how they handle patients. Um, If a person has any sort of cancer, the catastrophic, whatever, whatever stage, if terminal, the doctor will not at all tell them what's the patient, what's going on. They'll say, oh, you could be dying of stage four cancer. And the doctor will look at you and say, oh, you're fine. Just go home, get rest, eat healthy, get exercise. You're fine. And then they'll meet with somebody within the family and they'll say, hey, they're dying of cancer. Just don't tell them. Cause like, why would you want to do that to the person? And for, you know, a red-blooded American, like, we want all the facts. We, we want all the facts to where you're going in for a simple procedure just to, to, to remove, I don't even want to say a mole, but those, when it's like a little piece of skin like a mole that you know is not dangerous, you, you go in for that, and doctors say, well, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. I'm like, oh, I just thought I was going for a simple procedure. Turns out I might die through this whole thing. Like, I better like, they lay everything before you so that you can make your decision. It's a very different. And so what Jesus is saying, who, whoever relaxes the law, he's like, don't relax the law. The law is like math. It, it, it re- requires an exactness. I am hardly a handyman, but going to trips down to Mexico to do our house building, one of the things I've learned over the years when it comes to lumber is you measure twice and you cut once. I really need to measure like seven times and then ask somebody else to make sure I got it right and then I can cut. Because if you get off with math, everything's messed up. There's no like... And the scripture is exacting. Our family's going through something really difficult right now, especially on my wife's side. My, my wife's aunt is basically dying of cancer. And it's really bad. And my mother-in-law was able to go visit her this week. And, and on Facebook, we have like a little... Because um, for, I think it was Mother's Day or something a couple of years ago, my mother-in-law wanted... Uh, to create a private family group where we could have Bible thoughts to encourage one another. And it's like when your mother-in-law asks for something like that, nobody in the family can say no. And so we have this group where we share spiritual things 
And so my mother-in-law wrote this thing after visiting with her sister who is dying of cancer, like far along, and is not a believer. And she's obviously sad, but this note that she wrote us, it was more, I don't know what the word is, thoughtful, introspective, considering life. And one of the things in what she wrote, she said, you know, the Bible really is a book of death. And the Bible forces this issue of contemplating death. You can't read through the scriptures without being confronted by it. And I think what Jesus is saying, when you don't loosen the law, don't, don't loosen, don't create a bunch of religion, a bunch of, hey, hey well, let's, let's create a bunch of rules that we can handle where we sort of measure against one another so that we, it won't taste so bad. It won't feel so harsh. And I think that Jesus is trying to force this issue that we reach the reality that we feel deep within us, that we have eternity in our hearts and we weren't created to die. And so death cuts us and you have to do something with it. And so to loosen the law to, to, it would be bad for us. It would be the Spanish doctor who you're, or you're potentially dying. He says, oh, you're fine. Just go there. They say, no, give them the facts so that they can respond appropriately. But the whole point is that they'd understood the law incorrectly. Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, after this whole discussion about how the Judaizers were promoting the law opposed to Christ, and he says there that, that prior to faith, prior to Christ, we were in custody, in the slammer, locked up, that you were stuck and Paul was one of them, but he says that, that, but Christ through this coming to know him and understanding, my whole understanding of the law was off. The purpose of the law, he says, is the law is a tutor, a schoolmaster to kind of take you by the hand to show you your dire situation, to place your hand into the hand of Christ so you might live. The law isn't bad. The law is wonderful. It should cut us. It forces us to realize our needs so that we would turn to the one who can help us. He goes on to say in verse 20, he says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. None of us in this room have scribes and Pharisees as friends. No, we, we don't. That wasn't a joke. That was like, seriously, we don't. We don't live back there. We don't, this, this, we don't really understand. When I read this and I think about what these people are thinking, the, 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 one of the most helpless situations that I, I remember being in was an intent, like it was forced upon me. I was in the Navy. And because we spent so much time flying in helicopters um, with gear over water, we were required to attend the, the Hilo dunk take course, which was, we go to the place, it was at Miramar. You sit through a class and it's like, well, we're going to put you in this little box. We're going to throw you in the water. We're going to flip it upside down and you're just going to swim out. It's all of us. We're Navy SEALs. We're like, no big deal. I'm good underwater. This will be like going to Magic Bound. It'll be fun. And we'll start you on the light. You guys just wear your swim trunks. Don't even worry about it. We have a rescue diver in there. We're like, we don't even need a rescue diver. Like, you know, but apparently policy, they had to have a rescue diver. <laughs> they put us in this thing and it was like, bloop, bloop, whoa. It's totally disoriented. And they're like, we all like didn't do very good. I think one or two of us made it out. And they're like, okay, now we're going to do it in total darkness with all your gear on. And all that school taught me was, is there any reason I'm even wearing a life jacket when I'm in a helicopter? Because I'm toast. Like, they're, like it, it's, it's hopeless. I'm a Christian. At the time, I was a Christian. And I'm like, if I go down in a helo, it's Jesus has called me home. <laughs> but I still was forced to wear the life jacket, even though I knew it would do me no good. 
these people listening to Jesus, the Pharisees and scribes were on the outskirts. These people were not scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus says, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, if you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, I'd like to introduce you to a Pharisee and get his testimony of life as a Pharisee. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, this is the Apostle Paul writing as a Christian, but reflecting on his life as a Pharisee. So Paul writes as a Pharisee, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. It's a bad term. This is not like our cute little puppies. They view dogs like if you go to Mexico, dogs down there, they are, you don't pet them, you don't touch them, you don't, they're on the bottom of the food chain. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Now I want to stop here. He's making his case. He wants his readers to understand grace, that they would, they're saved by grace. They need to walk by grace. And as people try to come and force religion on them to teach them that, that your relationship with God is contingent on you doing well. If you don't do well, then you're going to fail, that you're not, God isn't happy with you. So do all of these things and that makes God more happy with you. And Paul says, beware of these people. If any of them have confidence in the flesh, I far more that Paul is a Pharisee, when he looked at the landscape of the other Pharisees, other humans, he said, there is no other individual that has the credentials that I have. And he says in verse five, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, this last one, we, I really want you guys to catch this. As to the righteousness which is in the law, when you take those 613 commandments and the rabbinical teaching that compounds those 613 commandments, how do I measure up against the law? He says, found blameless. Paul's big revelation is that he was a sinner, that his righteousness didn't compare to God. And then he goes on to say, but this huge but in the Bible, it's beautiful. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ, more than that, I counted all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. And this word is rubbish is dung, but it's really another word that I don't have the confidence to say in church. It's not allowed on TV. This is a, it's dung. So this is worthless. All of that religion, all of that human righteousness, it was nothing. He gave it all up so that he might have Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So we come back to Jesus' teaching in verse 20. And he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. These people who Jesus was speaking to, these hundreds of people, the picture of righteousness that they knew, the greatest, the, the most difficult was the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus says, if you want to get into heaven, you have to exceed their righteousness. And this, if you feel it, if you understand that this is, you should be broken, helpless, not able to do anything. And what Jesus is doing is he's ultimately forcing us to him. 
So one more Navy story for you. So the guys in the teams have a sense of humor. Like it's, and I was the butt of a practical joke one time, one of many times. And so in our deployment cycle, you'll have lulls where there's a couple of weeks. And during these couple of weeks, um, they'll send guys to different schools. My specialty in the teams, I was, I, was always, I was a communicator and I was responsible for the dive gear. I had a reputation that I was not a, a, a guy that knew engines or any sort of repair, any sort of monkey wrench, any sort of grease. That, that, not my ball of wax. It still is not. And so we're sitting around as a platoon space and we're down. I'm like, oh, this is going to be nice. I got an easy three weeks coming up. I'm just going to hang out, not do much. And then somebody comes out like, hey, Gunner, we got a school for you. Oh, really? Where, where is it? Oh, it's local. It's right here. I'm like, oh, bummer, because I thought maybe I'd be able to go somewhere. And I'm like, well, what school is it? Evan Rude Johnson Factory Certified, certified Outboard Motor Repair School. And I'm like, wait, what? They're like, yeah, we're sending, sending you to Evan Rude Johnson. This is like, for those of you that are like me, you know when you guys are on a little rubber road and there's that motor that you can steer like this with a throttle? They sent me to the factory to be certified by these guys. Or it was not the actual factory, but the factory guy came. It was two weeks long, and I'm like, this isn't good. They're like, this is hilarious. We're gonna, you're going to fail out so bad, and we can't wait to like, make fun of you when you get back. So I'm like, oh, man, I'm in so much trouble. So I show up at the school Monday morning. And like all of the guys that were there were total monkey wrenched. I mean, it was like grease under their fingernails. Like they knew a thing about an engine. And here I was going, I'm in so much trouble. And he's like, a lot of them are just like regular Navy guys. And I see another SEAL and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go pa- partner up with you. I'm like, hey, my name's Gunnar. How you doing? And he's like, hey, not much. I'm from whatever team. And, and so we were sitting through the classes. And they're, they're, the first week was all class about how the engine sort of works. Don't ask me to explain it to you. I can't. I don't have a clue. And, and uh, the second week, the deal is, is you start with the perfectly good Evan Rude Johnson motor, and you take every single piece apart. Like every piece has to come apart, every little piece. And you put every single piece into this bucket. And then to graduate from the school to get factory certified, on Friday afternoon, the instructor has to come up and go, Voomp, and the engine needs to start and work. And I'm like, I am in so much trouble. I don't even think I can get through. And then I learned that it wasn't, they paired you up. And it wasn't an individual test. It was your team. And so they're like, oh, there's two seals. So you two seals hang out for this. And I go up to the guy and I'm like, I'm really, really, really sorry, man. I like my platoon is playing a joke on me, man. I don't know anything about this stuff. I don't have a clue. He's like, oh, dude, don't worry about it. Before I was in the Navy, I was a professional mechanic. I could do this in my sleep. And I was like, how about I just bring the coffee every morning and I'll just talk to you and tell stories and I'll just kind of keep my hands like near it, but I don't want to get them dirty if that's okay with you. And so the whole week he breaks it down. I'm supplying the coffee, telling jokes. At the end of the day, at the end of the week, the instructor comes and pulls it. I get my... Evan Rude Johnson, factory certified diploma. I go back into the platoon space and they're like, so Gunnar, how bad was the test? How bad did you fail out? Boom, boys. Evan Rude Johnson, factory certified. I'm a total mechanic now. And they're like, no way. How did you get through this? I'm like, this, just studied hard, paid attention, you know, like, uh, no problem. I guess I have a gift. I don't know. Well, then the next week, I found myself in San Diego Bay in a Zodiac with the whole platoon, and our engine stops working. (laughs) And they all look at me, and they're like, Hunter, fix it. I'm like, are you kidding me? I don't have a clue. They're like, you passed. I'm like, yeah, but I passed. It's a long story. It's not like I passed. And they're like, shut up. Are you serious? I'm like, I'm serious. I'm like, you better call the other boat over and have the other guy come fix it. And the guy comes over, he like did one little thing, and it's like, oh, my moment was... And the reason I tell this story is our righteousness. Jesus did all the work for you. You did nothing. You did nothing. And 
even though you have your diploma of his righteousness, as we start walking with him and you, you know, you tuck in your shirt, comb your hair, stop swearing, don't do whatever things you've been struggling with, then you start thinking, pretty righteous. And then you start becoming a legalist and you start judging everybody. But see, the problem is, it's worthless. You have no righteousness to offer. We're walking around with our Evan Rude Johnson certificates, but it's his righteousness that's been credited to our account. We're told that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus, from this, over the next three weeks, he's going to totally transform their understanding of the law. We as Christians say, oh, the law was so hard, but we have it so easy in the New Testament. But if you go to Jesus' teaching, what we're going to see in Matthew 5.21, he's going to say, you have heard it said. He's going to talk about murder. He's say, but I say to you that the spirit of the law is that you're angry with your brother. You've committed murder in your heart. In Matthew 5.27, he's going to say, you've heard it said that this is adultery, but I tell you, if you look with lust upon a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. And he says, the last one's a little bit harder to convey so clearly, but he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. But I tell you this, you slapped across the face, offer them the other day, if you're insulted. He goes on to, he not only teaches the law, but he shows the intent which far elevates it. And if we understand how high God's standard is, and we need to maintain that standard, our understanding of what holiness is, because what it does for those of us, well, for all of us it should, but for those of us who have come to trust in Christ, it keeps us pretty painfully humble. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, the Bible's not this rule book to show you how you can get to heaven by doing a bunch of good works. This book is a book that shows you your total depravity and inability to accomplish anything good before God that will earn your way into heaven. What it does is brutally show you your need. And the God who judges us, the God who puts the standard before us is so kind and so merciful, so gracious that he says, here, I've done it for you. All you have to do is believe. And that's a wonderful, wonderful place to be. So Father, we come before you, Lord. I confess that that the farther that I go from being the man who I was apart from you, Lord, the, the easier it is um, to fuel a sense of self-righteousness within me. It's so easy to compare myself to others. And so, Father, we humble ourselves before you. We Lord, we acknowledge that our righteousness is but filthy rags before you, as the prophet Isaiah said. There is nothing that we can do in our own strength, in our own merit that can meet your holiness. And so, Father, we are humbled, we are in awe, we are thankful that Jesus came, that he not fulfilled the law by meeting all of the messianic prophecies, that he fulfilled the law and that he was perfect. And to think that he went to the cross because of our sin, not of his own, that he died out of a great love for his creation, for his people. And so, Father, 
I pray for those in this room who maybe don't know you as Savior, who think it's about doing good works. That's just a terrible place to be for what you, there's no certainty. And the weight of that climbing, trying, doing is just backbreaking. And it's all for naught. It just will lead you to frustration and failure. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help each person in this room to see that you are a God who has done it for us. And all you want is for us to believe. So, Father, I pray that you would help the unbelief in this room. For those of us who have believed in you, Lord, we thank you that salvation is by grace, that it's not of our own works, that it's of your work. We thank you, Lord, for your law, which exposes the sinful nature that we have and our helplessness, Lord, and we just rejoice that you've done it all. We thank you for your great love for us. Father, we pray that not only would we, as we are, saved by grace, but that you would help us to be a people who walk by grace, who live by grace, who embody grace. Lord, give us your eyes. Help us to see people the way you see them. Father, we do love you. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.